scripture reading is taken from the book of Romans, 13th chapter, starting at the first verse. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. The word of the Lord. Just start by saying that uh, you can't apply all scripture in all circumstances. Does that help you with that text? Um, The kids doing the maze downstairs, I, I was the person that got to do the talk. We had like 34, 35 um, preteen kids here on Friday night for this giant cardboard maze that you need to look at. And the talk was, at least in my mind, it was interesting. I don't know if they found it interesting, but uh, uh, first we got them to act out all kinds of emotion things, and then we, we tend to go to a Bible verse or something. But afterwards I thought, I don't know if I should have done that because I told them, I'm going to tell you a Bible verse and I'm going to give you a situation where it doesn't apply. Um, which they don't even get that anyway. They're kids. They're thinking about the maze. But I said, there's a, there's a very famous Bible verse, you know it. Um, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, right? To press on to, toward the prize that God has for us in Christ Jesus. And I said, when you go in the maze, uh, you probably don't want to forget what's behind. If you forget what's behind, you're going to get lost. Um, and they actually got it. And uh, uh, they're fearless in the maze, by the way. But anyway... Uh, This text is an interesting text because I hope as it was read, as Laura read it to us, that you kind of went, oh, well, but what about, just can I put your mind at ease? That's good that you have that, but what about when? All right, we'll unpack it. Our series is the Christian gospel in the book of Romans. We've mentioned that God has turned towards us, not away from us, and God has chosen not to be God without us. Our efforts, whether they're based on self, trying to get our own security or make our own way in the world, or whether they're based on religion, trying to please uh, God or our concept of God, our efforts prove empty. And the Romans' word for this is that God's wrath is revealed against all human efforts. But Romans 3.21 says, Now the righteousness of God has been revealed or made manifest in Christ Jesus. And we see this gospel. The Christian is someone who has seen that the righteous, that righteousness comes from God in Jesus Christ and believes and confesses and then lives their life out of that reality. The important question, as we've mentioned, 
is who is the God who meets us in Jesus Christ? I want to free you from other questions that limit your faith and seek, as we said, or, or inadvertently divide or sometimes purposely divide questions like who is in and who is out, who is really a believer, something like that. The key question, sometimes it might help you to ask those questions, but the, the one question you need to consistently ask in living the Christian faith is who is the God who meets us in Jesus Christ? There's a word for that, and we live in the light of God's mercies, living in the light of the gospel, and the word that describes this Christian life uh, maybe better than most others is the word freedom. You've been set free now from human effort and from religious effort, and you now can live free, not serving your own appetites, not being imprisoned in self-focus, but being free to love. Chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, as we looked at last week, goes over love for brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, uh, Paul's going to take up after outlining what the gospel is. He's going to say, so here's how you should live as a church. And it's interesting that we often forget that in trying to build these empires. You know, you, you think in, that if it's just a bigger and bigger place, we have our, our metrics, metrics of success are primarily the world's metrics of success. But what Paul's going to do as he opens this, what it means to live in light of the gospel, isn't going to be, and by God's grace, this thing does get bigger and bigger. There should be growth. But the metrics that Paul's going to give are things, well, here's how you are to treat one another. And as I told you before, it was always something for me as a youth pastor and as a pastor, and had it in my mind, and sometimes it probably led me to unfair judgment, um, like where I was not really thoughtful about things, but that whenever we're meeting to talk about the church, we have to remember to be the church. And so if it's discord and disharmony and distrust and suspicion, then uh, no matter the success of our program, we may be getting things wrong. So Paul's going to talk about what living in the light of the gospel means for brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's a beautiful call to love one another, even to put up with one another, which is just as beautiful, by the way. Verse 18, as much as it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Which I learned in our home group that some people, when they were growing up, that verse was a burdensome verse, which was like, it's up to you to make peace, you good for nothing. And if there's no peace, then it's your fault. I never, I never heard the verse that way. I always heard this as like a, a beautiful, realistic verse that said, Todd, you owe it to others as much as is in your grasp to live at peace with them. But here's the truth. Sometimes, even though you do as much as you can to live at peace, they're not going to want to be at peace. So this is a realistic call as well, living in the light of the gospel. And now we get to chapter 13. So you go from brothers and sisters in Christ, right, one circle, to a wider circle, saying this is how you're to live with people in the world, including those who would see themselves as your enemies or your opponents, right? That there, there's some people in the world who think the problem with the world is religion, or maybe more specifically, some people who would say the problem with the world is Christianity. Whoever it is that, that sees themselves, would label themselves as opponent, Romans 12, 9 to 21 is going to tell you how to live it, uh, with those people. And the answer, of course, is love. Don't repay evil with evil. Don't be afraid. So we move from the circle of brothers and sisters in Christ the larger circle of everybody in, in our, you know, just other relationships in this world, 
including difficult ones. And now we move in Romans chapter 13 to the governing authorities into the state. So you see how Paul's building this. Here's how you're to live in relationship with one another. Here's how you're to live in relationship with people who are outside the church. And here's, how you, here's your responsibilities in terms of the government and the state. Who are the rules for? I guess I could ask you, what rules are you willing to break? I'm pretty safe to say that most of you break some rules, even if they're just municipal bylaws each week. Or, or you know, here's how you're supposed to take care of your garbage or something like that. Do you feel guilty when you put that in the, in the garbage instead of the food scrap? You should, according to this text. You should feel very guilty. I don't mean that, but anyway, we'll get there. Keith and Kim and I go riding our bikes last Tuesday, and we're over by Granville Island. There's a nice stretch there where there's no lights. It's just, I guess it's the other side of the, there's train tracks there, isn't there something? Anyway, um, and so we're heading east, from east, heading west towards Granville Island, and you come up this little hill, and then there's a stop there, and it says, it's clearly indicated, so if any of you have broken this law, may the wrath of God be upon you, because it's clear that it says no cars. Cars aren't allowed to go through here. Only buses and bikes. So it's like an invitation to Kim and Keith and I. You guys are welcome to come through here. But every time when I get there, almost every time, I'd say two-thirds of the time, because the problem is, if I'm in a car and I'm thinking, I just need to get to that block. It's right there. I can almost reach it. It's much easier, and there's nothing stopping me physically from going through this little thing that I'm not supposed to go through and then get to where I'm going. Because I know if I turn left, which is the only option, I'm going to be on 4th Street and over. It's going to take me maybe seven, eight minutes to get there. I can get there in 30 seconds. So as I'm riding my bike, I look, and this, this past time, uh, I hear a car behind me, and I think, he's going to break the rules, he's going to break the rule. And sure enough, boom, they just go right through and as I tell you, there's a correlation. Now you're just going to get my little. There's a correlation between the price of the car and the willingness to break small rules. <laughs> so I guess the answer is who are the rules? The question who are the rules for? In some case, this person is saying, not me, not today. Now you do that, and I do that as well. Uh, my family hasn't lived in Estrada for five years or so, or almost five years but I'm still angry when I think about people leaving garbage by the recycling bins. I mean, I could, I could work myself up right now. I can picture five years ago going to do my recycling and literally going, who do these people think they are? Who did this? Who put this old piece of crap TV stand that nobody wants? And now there's an out. You just put free on it. Which means I don't want to take it to the dump. Right? Lots of things bother me. Like I told you the other day, I think I had this in my mind, that's why I used the example earlier. Um, we had chicken wings for, for dinner at some point, and Jen was going out to fitness, and I was cleaning up, and uh, it was my job on this occasion to put the chicken wings into a brown bag of food scraps, like the bones and stuff, and I'm putting them in there, and it's on top of the counter, and there's old food waste in there too, and I turn around to do something else, and then that whole precariously balanced bag just goes boop. <laughs> and now there's chicken wings with three kinds of sauce, beautiful, before you eat it. And I'm looking at it and just going, why do I want to put, why don't I just throw them in the garbage? I didn't. I put them in the scraps. Romans 13, a long setup. 
How are people who have responded to the gospel going to live in the light of that gospel as it relates to the state, which means government, doesn't mean like province or state. State always in, in this means bigger country. In relate, how are we going to live in the light of the gospel as it relates to the state, to rules and taxes? And see, I have an added challenge that I have somebody who works for the city of North Vancouver that can see through my living room every day. He goes to this church, so look out. The call for us as Christians, those who have responded to the gospel, the call for us is to be a conscientious citizen. That's the call. That's what this text is about. It's not that you judge one another on every little broken rule, but the call is for this living, this life of conscience before the state in light of what God has done for us. Now, as we dive into Romans 13, let me say this with a shaking finger to those who have done this, okay? Never, never, ever, and I have good backup here from John Stott and other writers of commentaries, never, ever start anything with Romans 13. Never. You never start with because I said so. You say, well, I've got a preteen. Okay, that's an exception. (laughs) The problem of proof texting and taking a verse out, this is one of the most abused portions of scripture in the history of the world. Because anybody who's in charge and is abusing their power will go to this and use it. You can see how they would use it, right? Stott, in his commentary, mentions uh, an account where... um, a social justice worker in South Africa, this is years ago, before the apartheid regime fell, uh, was going to meet the current president of South Africa, the president at the time. And the president had called him to meet. And so this uh, worker, who was also, I think, at various times a reporter, uh, this person went to meet with the president thinking, this is fantastic. They're going to try to build some bridges and maybe help some of the poor people that I'm trying to help and some of the people who aren't white that I'm trying to help and various things. And he went to the president's office and the president literally, as this man walked in, uh, stood up and grabbed a Bible and began reading from Romans 13. Which he was saying to the person, you need to get your act together and tell people that you're caring for to follow the rules. Because, and here's the the kicker, right? Because God says so. Remember, the call to obey is alongside other scripture. Actual biblical examples where God called people to resist the authorities. The slaves in Egypt, which is a, a primary narrative in our scripture. I mean, this comes from the Passover, right? A key narrative in scripture is resistance to this authority in Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar saying you must bow down to these images. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow down. And in the New Testament, the apostles told by ruling councils to stop preaching about Jesus. And they do what? They refuse. So how do you read these accounts along Romans 13? Well, that's what I hope to help you with somewhat this morning. This call to conscientious citizenship, I'm going to try to say that as little as possible. This call to conscientious citizenship is within a larger frame that I want to draw for you. The larger frame is this. God is sovereign above all. I'll say it again. God is sovereign 
above all, which implies you put your trust in God. That's the first step. And then follow the rules. You'll know when to resist. All power, this text says, comes from God. This does not mean that the actions of all people in authority are sanctioned or ordained by God. I don't have to begin to outline times in history when this is the case. What's interesting is there are as, well, I don't know if it's the same, but, and, and sometimes things that are set up as religious conflict are actually political conflict or about money and grabbing land and whatever, and religion is conveniently used. But the reason I bring this up is that uh, abuse of power and, and actions that are oppressive or hateful or seek to divide people, those are done by secular authorities and those are done by religious authorities. There's no, there's not, it's not that, in, and by the way, by Christians often as well as non-Christians. Another interesting note in, is that in Romans 13, the time when Paul was writing it to Christians, so he's writing it to a church. It's the church in Rome, right? When Paul is writing it, we know something about the authorities. And you want to know this, you know, very interesting to consider. There are no Christian authorities at the time. They didn't exist. There's no Christian government. There's nobody who's saying, you know, um, God bless America at the end of each speech. There is no Christian authority at the time that Paul is writing this. And yet he says, you are to obey the authorities. Very curious. I hope that you're willing to engage your mind over Scripture and wrestle with this a little bit rather than using it to just justify your own actions either of acquiescing to power or resisting power. This, you, this text should, should challenge you and upset you in some way. Whether it's in, oh, I guess I better follow the rules, or whether it's in uh, it's a, you know, resistance. This doesn't mean there's no room for resistance. So this frame that God is sovereign, and if you truly believe that God is sovereign, here's the key. Now here's the freedom for you. This is freedom of living in the gospel. If you truly accept that God is sovereign and truly believe that, you can now adopt a proper perspective in what it means to live in light of the state and the government, how you relate to the authorities. I believe that God is sovereign over all. So I'm going to seek to be this good citizen. But of course, my trust is not in the government. Do you understand that? So there will be, I don't expect the government to act like God. And there will be times when I think it's appropriate to resist or to counter. I was thinking, what if, what if uh, we took up a practice of reading Romans 13 the morning after every election? I mean, some days, you people here would be like, Yes, these opponents of mine better darn well get in line because look at what the word says. And other times the wrong side one in your mind. And then what do you do with it? Psalm 2, the second psalm. Why do the nations rage? The earthly authorities are so impressed with themselves is the idea. The idea that those in earthly power can think that they have ultimate power that they are really powerful. And there's a response in the psalm to what, how God acts when the nations rage like that. Rage being like uh, present themselves as all-powerful. 
What's God's response when the nations act like that? Those who know the psalm know the response. The Lord laughs. It's perfect response. The Lord laughs. I picture it like God is looking at all of our constructions of power and hierarchy and looking and going, that's such a childish little playground. Now, of course, we know that that can cause great, you know, our actual decisions can hurt people or we can be hurt by those in power. But this, this still stands, that God looks at how the nations rage and he laughs. I think it kind of explains, not that I want to put myself in the position of God, but, and not that I'm just mad at everybody who has nice cars. I'm not. I don't think. But this might be why I find Ferraris funny. Every time I see a Ferrari, I, I giggle. Do you get that? Because do you know how much money was spent on that thing? And somebody who's driving that desperately wants something. And it is just, and I especially laugh when they're stuck in traffic. Why do the nations rage? So I want to tell you a couple of things, or a few, two, and then one ending point uh, that can happen when we forget God's sovereignty and forget that the rise and fall of empires is something that God is over in all of history. He's higher than it. I read an article once that used the term Swedish caveman. I mean, it's an interesting thing. What's a Swedish caveman? But the, a critique of the article or a letter written in the next month in the same, same magazine pointed out, there's no such thing as a Swedish caveman. If you're thinking of, you know, if, if you think that however many years ago there were these other kinds of people, that there's some development. Uh, but we certainly know this. There was no Swedish one because there was no Sweden. Understand? That came later. There's no Canadian Neanderthal, although some of you might know them. You can't get your head around the fact that for most of human history, there has not been a Canada. Isn't that interesting? And one day, and I don't mean to say this like, oh, somebody's coming to get us. I mean to say this trusting in the sovereignty of God. One day there will cease to be a Canada. Remember your history. The Austro-Hungarian Empire. What was that? I don't know. It seems kind of pathetic now. It didn't then. The Ottoman Empire, Prussia. I mean, you study history in high school and you get to Prussia and you think, well, I got Russia and I know Poland. What's Prussia? Well, it's nothing now, but it was something then. Or Assyria. Or Egypt. Or blockbuster video. I mean, I used to go to the bottom of 19th Street here and that was an awfully big store. Now it's a pet thing it's way too big. It seems too big for a pet store for me. But anyway. And that was, their video stores were everywhere. People making scads of money. They're gone. They don't exist. Well, maybe you say, no, there is one. Empires rise and fall and only God is sovereign. One day, and I say this, trust me, I don't say this with pleasure. Because it's been a tremendous blessing for me and I hope that it continues for a number of years. But one day, this is what it means to trust in God's sovereignty. One day there will be no Sutherland Church. And if you can't say thanks be to God, not because, boy, I can't wait till it's over, not that, but that God is sovereign over all of these things. And as a minister, my call, my first call is not to make a decision. Now, some would say, 
careful now. We've got the chair of the board here, everything else. Uh, my first call is not to consider what's best for Sutherland Church. As a minister, my first call is, Lord God, what would you have me do? So a few things to tell you when we get this wrong, when we forget God's sovereignty. First of all, uh, in that case, much of our human behavior comes from misplaced fear or misplaced hope. We fear too often or we fear in a way that the Bible tells us not to fear at all. Or we place hope in things and people in governments that aren't to have that kind of hope. I say it often at weddings, right? We found each other and we're right up here and they're holding hands about to say their vows or just before uh, we do the little talk and, and we say, and I remember this was in one of the royal weddings. Uh, who's the really cool royal couple now? Anyway, you know them. It matters. But um, and the minister said it. He said, the ultimate things that you need in life cannot be found in your spouse. Do you know that? The, the things of ultimate meaning can only be found in God. Same thing in terms of the state. Whoever wins can't answer the problems of the world. Robert Frost put it this way, the poet. He said, there's nothing I'm afraid of like scared people. Right? And what's curious to me is that one of the marks of Christianity in the West right now, maybe, maybe other parts of the world too, but certainly in North America, one of the marks of Christianity, as it's shown in the media and, and the world, and whether this is fair or not, one of the marks is that Christians are, are fearful. It doesn't go together. If you trust in the sovereignty of God, And we do really stupid and terrible things when we're afraid. We dehumanize people. We hurt people. We're willing to... I'm going to skip down to this. In 16th century France, there were massacres of Protestants, right? <clears throat> people who worship God in what the governing authorities of the day, religious, would say, that's the wrong way to worship God. <clears throat> and they were massacred, thousands and thousands of people, publicly. And it was, it was horrible, horrific. But there's accounts, and one of the accounts I'm reading, someone talking about this says, you can imagine a day where people are walking towards one of these public executions or one of these public massacres, and they are being told and they're telling one another that what's happening is helping God. You think, how could that possibly be? Here's how. Because the governing authorities, and they were religious at the time, said, these people who are worshiping God improperly are a threat to our eternal salvation. Because if they deceive us, well, then we'll be. And so the people who did it thought they were doing a good thing. If you trust in the sovereignty of God, you won't have this kind of fear. And you won't put your hope in things that are not of God. In Leviticus chapter 26, most of you don't read Leviticus that much. And you probably shouldn't. I'm just kidding. Read it at least once or twice in your life, but it's not the kind of thing that you're kind of going to go, oh, wow, this is such beautiful. I mean, it, it's interesting. But in Leviticus chapter 26, there's warnings and directions about trusting and failing to trust God. The, the encouragement in trusting God says this, and it would be the same for us today. If you truly trust in God, you will be strong. You'll be strong. And, he's, and, and this is being said to a group of people, to a whole nation, basically, but a group. If you trust in God, you, plural, you'll be strong, you'll have strength. And if you don't trust in God's sovereignty, and here's the, here's the punishment, very interesting. If you don't trust in God's sovereignty, you will have, quote, faintness of heart. 
And then this beautiful picture, and most of you don't know it because it's in Leviticus and you skip over it. You will have faintness of heart and the sound of a driven leaf shall put you to flight. Everything will sound like you've got to be afraid. You will flee, and again this is plural, you will flee as one flees the sword. You will fall though none pursue. Those who forget God, who is the single assurance of our safety, whatever you, however you would interpret the word safety, but those who forget God, who is the single assurance of our eternal safety, can be recognized by the fact that they make irrational responses to irrational fears. And this is not a Christian virtue or practice. And it is not a Christian virtue or practice. Please hear this. I mean, we could do so much better in terms of evangelism if we just got this one thing right that I'm about to say. It is not a Christian practice or virtue to incite fear on the part of others. You can help people see the sovereignty of God. The other side of this misplaced fear is a misplaced hope. We can fear that society is collapsing and that the state is an enemy, or we can falsely think that the state can answer all ultimate questions and that the incoming president or prime minister will be kind of a messiah figure. You see that? I mean, it's happened. It happens over and over again. To some degree, it's happening in Canada right now with some people. It happened in the United States seven, eight years ago. And nobody could ever measure up. It's a misplaced hope, thinking that, well, now, good, we've got the people in charge that we want in charge. In this text, you are free to obey and called to submit even to authorities, not because the state is God, but because the state is not God. Do you understand the difference? So the state's going to make all kinds of rules about how a, a society needs to function. You've got to stop at the red light, except if you're turning right, I suppose. And you better follow the rules of the state. And to the point, Paul will say later, because if you don't, your Christian witness is impacted. But the state is not God. The Christian should be able to say when the other party or the other, other candidate wins, or when my chosen party or my chosen candidate wins, should be able to say, well, my trust is in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so this would be probably the most political thing I'll say because I don't know how many of you are champions. You don't have to identify yourself. You don't have to say, that's my guy. But I'll just say a question that some people in the United States and around the world are asking right now, this morning. What if Donald Trump wins? I mean, some people are asking that with some sense of drama. Others just curious observers. Here's my answer. I don't know. But I know that God is sovereign. Does that mean God would choose that person? I'm not going to say that. And I'll battle that every time. If I hear a politician saying it's God's will that I'm in charge. Sorry. Lost me on that one. I don't see that as biblical. Remember that most or sometimes I think it's all evil is perpetrated in the name of good. Just like this example I gave you from 16th century France. So when we forget God's sovereignty, we put our fear and our hope in the wrong places. And we fear too much. Secondly, when we forget God's sovereignty in terms of the rise and fall of empires and governments, 
uh, we get the wrong idea of what revolution means. And so, I mean, it's so ridiculous, isn't it? If you're a political observer of any kind, one thing you're guaranteed in every election is that somebody will say, it's time for change, which logically makes no sense. Every single time is the time for change. That means change is the one constant, right? There you go. We need a revolution because these other people who were in charge, they messed it up. The Christian, I, I wanted to like yell this out. And the Christian has such a higher view of revolution than any political understanding could possibly contain. No one, no one in history, in government, in church, in any human institution, no one in history has or ever will usher in God's reign. That alone is up to our Lord. It doesn't happen by the power of the pastor or the power of the priest or of the president or the prime minister, conveniently all P-words. Even if the one who you want to win wins and you're in charge and you kid yourself and think this is a Christian nation, a Christian home, how many of you have lived under the judgment that you put on yourselves thinking that your home is supposed to be a Christian home? And so that when you fight and act like normal people, it feels less Christian. Or when there's a separation or when there's terrible pain. Right? And so then what you do is you closet that trouble off and, and it becomes like this kind of this horrible part of your experience and this failure. And there may well be failure in it. But any time that we kind of set up an institution as the one, you don't see any Christian homes in the Bible. I mean, everybody's a wreck. I'll just give you that. Real revolution comes not from human revolt. And I understand, and I'm a student of history, I, political revolution is one of the most interesting things. We wouldn't be here without the French Revolution. Isn't that crazy? So real revolution is something that's interesting, and it matters, and it makes a difference. The political revolution. But real revolution, in terms of God's sovereignty, comes not from human revolt, but real revolution comes from God. In other words, we say this is the way that the world is. However it is, we set it up. So you might live in 16th century France or you might live in 21st century North Vancouver. And the one thing you know is this is the given. You're going to walk out there and all these authority structures and everything else and people are going to say that's the way that it is. And so when we think revolution, if we wanted to, you think we've got to overthrow that. Well, that's political revolution, civil revolution. Real revolution, it's God saying the way that you do things is not my way. Our history is littered with the skeletons of those who thought they could bring in some kind of utopia. It's still difficult for me to watch documentaries on, um, what was it called, the people, Jim Jones, and, and the, when people committed that mass act of suicide in South America. He started as a Christian, kind of Christian leader, doing good for lots of people. But, but the claim was, we're going to usher in a, an era. And any human structure that says that, Skeletons in history, often with great damage. In this text, when you're reading it, it's helpful to remember, Now, I want to, you to do this for yourself, 
it's helpful to remember, please, could, if everybody could do this in this church, myself included, we would begin to have more and more of an evangelical witness in the world. Do this. However right you are, so we all need to kind of say this in our minds. I won't make like a, you know, whatever kind of minister gets you to repeat words and say them to your neighbor, but and I'd like that. But However right you are, so you can say in your mind, however right I am, now I get the next part, I am mostly wrong. However right I am, I am more wrong than right. Because the standard of my Lord Jesus Christ in terms of how he loves the world and how he has given himself for all people is something that I could never attain in my strength. However right I am, I am more wrong. Thanks be to God. So now read these verses on the state. Because the necessary revolution is not a political revolution, though at times those can be of great historical significance and even benefit. But in terms of Christian faith, the necessary revolution, do you know where it is for you? And I say this and I wish I could just pierce you know, your conscience with, with the Holy Spirit. The necessary revolution is in the human heart. The necessary revolution, now I just made it too cozy for you, the necessary revolution is in your heart and mine. So Paul can say, so render to the state what the state asks. In terms of rules, your obedience, follow the rules. The rules are for you and the functioning of the state and of society. And if people decide that they don't have to follow the rules, then, well, there'll be anarchy. And Christianity is not anarchy. At times, the rules can even seem arbitrary, and you're going to have to make decisions on how you follow them at that point. But it's better to follow than to not follow. Render your due in terms of rules, obedience to the state. And render your due, and this is really tough for some people, render your due even in terms of taxes. Christians are not to think of taxes as a necessary evil. They're for the functioning of the state. Taxes provide an awful lot of good. And I mean, it's hard for me to say this. I get like a pastoral exemption and stuff. I get a lot of exemptions. Um, But maybe it's not our job to figure out how little we can pay. Rules and taxes. Jesus has asked this one time. You remember it? There are, people are arguing about this, and it's about taxes. This Roman authority, they think that we should give them money, and it was much more oppressive taxation than you are under now. Trust me. They say we should give them money, and they're, they're fighting about it. There's kind of two groups, and so they go to Jesus, and they also want to trap him. And so I wish I had a coin here. Somebody throw me a coin, quick. Thanks. I mean, in Canada, we are... What is that? I don't even know what that is. Anyway, um, so they say, what should we do? Because our money is going to this godless regime. And Jesus says, throw me a coin. Whose picture's on there? Caesar's. Well, the queen in this case. Which represents the Canadian government. 
Oh, well, then I guess you should give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they just went, I don't know what that means. I think it might mean something like this. That for some people in this world, for many, money is the highest order. It's the biggest thing. I ask myself sometimes if Jesus would be enraged over bank fees. It's curious for me to consider him even having bank accounts. But would he lead the charge against bank fees that are sometimes ridiculous? I grant you that. To some degree, I ask myself, would he say, yeah, you know what? Whatever. Banks love money. Give them money. But give to God what is God's. Because the people who love and serve money, and by the way, this doesn't just mean rich people or poor people. Some poor people love and serve money, and some rich people don't. So don't take this as an accusation against the rich. But the people who love and serve money, well, they'll, they'll pile it up or they'll be consumed that they don't have enough. But render to God what is God's. This is a much higher call. Finally, I want to offer you this higher call. In light of the gospel, what you will see that Paul is saying, yes, follow the rules of the state. The state has to function. But there is no confusion between the state and God. And please understand this as Christians, and this text will help us to see it. Uh, more an example, it's not explicit in the text, but Jesus' way of authority, the way that Jesus understood authority, offers us a higher call to emulate all the time. So I can look at states, governments, hierarchies, and I can think, yep, that's how the world works. And I have to function in that, and so I'm going to seek to be a person of good conscience within that. And I'm not going to break the rules. I'm going to try not to. And at times I would be punished if I do break the rules. But please, again, this is not sanctioned because some people have no possibility of following the rules. I read an article in McLean's magazine yesterday on um, rates of incarceration for First Nations people in our country. And it's shameful. And in terms of some of the ways that they're treated, that I would get different treatment because I'm not First Nations. And I know it's a bit of a circle and there's another side to this conversation, but all, of, all I'm saying is it's not, you can't shake your finger at somebody else and say, well, if you just follow the rules, you wouldn't be punished. Don't do that. That's not a Christian thing. Jesus offers a higher way of authority and a higher understanding. And let me start by saying this with this point. If you ever have to say in your life, work, family, whatever, because I said so, I want you to understand, and I'm saying that that's at least part failure. I already know that you knew that because you felt it before you said it. It was like a last resort. And so if you have a toddler, they might need to hear that. They're not developed yet in their mind, in their brain, in their intellect. But the because I said so doesn't work so great at my house anymore. Aiden, because I said so, pats me on the head. Ask yourself this question. How many times did the Lord of all the universe say that? Jesus Christ in the Gospels. If anybody, if anybody gets to say because I said so, it's him. Get your act together, world. Do you know who I am? I'm the Lord. If I rely on the fact that I am in charge and you do this because I'm the pastor, 
I mean, I hope I haven't done that here in this place. Sometimes I'd be tempted, but nobody cares in, in a brethren church, or historically brethren church. When I went to the Presbyterian church, one of the things that happened is I realized, hey, these people listen to me sometimes just because I said something. Because they go like, that's the pastor. Not so much in a Plymouth Brethren church where there haven't been pastors historically, right? There are circumstances when Jesus speaks in this way, but here's where they are. The healing of a person with an evil spirit, he'll speak to the evil spirit that way, to the distortion. Do you remember when he calmed the wind and the waves? Commanded them, spoke that way. These things that are anti the peace of God, but not to a person. We construct our human hierarchies because we are so sinful that things couldn't work otherwise, and that's how the state works. And we should be thankful to live in a place where we're governed as we are, even if the people in charge are different than the ones we think should be. In the church, the priest or the pastor. You remember when the Pope was asked a question about a really, uh, for some thorny issue of the day, he was on a plane at the time. He He said he tends to say controversial things on flights. He did it this week too with the wall. Um, and Trump. But he was asked one time about, you know, what do you think about this issue? And clearly people wanted a stance, right? And remember his answer? This is Pope Francis. He said, who am I to judge? Now, what's the answer for that? Certainly if you're a Catholic. Um, Who are you to judge? You're the Pope. (laughs) That's your job. His point was bigger than the issue. His point was the sovereignty of God. And instead of making all of these statements, he does things like wash the feet of prisoners and holds a mass in one of the poorest parts of Mexico because he wants to show the way of Christ. So I'm a parent, and I say, because I said so. Or let's make it even more difficult and say, have you had these conversations, those of you who are married, and you're trying to figure out what the the Christian way of marriage is? And I'll tell you what it is. I mean, you can differ with me, but it's mutual submission. It's the only way that works. You can call it something else, and you can have an idea of headship that is hierarchical, like headship means somebody's in charge, but headship to Jesus Christ meant that he gave his life. He emptied himself. He did not put himself above, right? And God raised him up. So in a marriage, you can say, well, you know, we really work according to a very traditional model, and in the end, if Jennifer and I had a dispute, I would decide. I mean, Mal's here, and he's not laughing, but it is funny. It's never happened. If it happens, it's a failure. Because I said so. But Jesus offers a higher way. Have you ever had a boss that likes to exercise their power sometimes just to prove they're powerful? And how pathetic that is? Just tells you to do some stupid thing because they're in charge and they can? And you want to just say, what's happening? Christians are to have such a different view of power and authority than that. And we can witness to God's mercy in the world in such a way. All of these earthly things, they work well in this kind of hierarchical understanding as long as you ignore Jesus. Jesus is going to mess it all up because he's going to take away the division. Jesus offers a higher way. Live in the light of the gospel and in relationship to the state. So take out your recycling and pay your taxes and submit to the rules and the laws. But maybe you need to think in a way less about them 
Maybe things like money should matter less to you than it does to the bank. And if you accomplish some good thing, you, you don't strike back at work when someone strikes at you. You help a neighbor who's in need. You don't sin in the way that you normally would. When you do something good, do you understand that you're not the hero of the story? It's God's sovereignty. It's Jesus Christ. This is Christian witness. We worship him alone. I want to invite you before we turn to the communion. If you have never turned to Jesus Christ. Scripture says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. That means that you say out loud. I believe that you are Lord. But now do you see when I say Jesus is Lord. It's not the way you understand lordship in the world. I believe that you are Lord and I give my life to you. You pray that prayer today. You go to the back. You can pray with somebody. But part of it is that somebody would hear you pray this. Say this. And to others, to Christians here who may have lived with too much fear or too much trust in human power and institutions, maybe you need to pray. My confession is this, that I want to let go of all these things that bother me or give me false hope, and I want to live in light of the sovereignty of God. Whatever happens. Sovereignty of the God who loves all. Forgive me for trying to usher in your kingdom. That is yours alone. And my trust is in you. And now nourish me. Feed me with this, your body and your blood. So that I can have my daily living, my life before you and before people in this world. We pray for this bread. We pray for this cup as we turn to communion now. The Lord, who was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on this form, a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, gave his body, and he gave his blood that the world would know how much God loves And that we can put our trust in him. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But even as I pray that, your human understanding of power muddies that situation up. Jesus is Lord over all the earth. So we invite you to take the bread and the cup if you know Jesus Christ or would like to. Let me pray.